Thanks for listening to this podcast from Christ Church of Orinoco. Our hope is that it would help you discover completeness in Jesus. Now for this week's teaching. Hey friends, welcome back to our study of 1 Peter. This week we're in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 3 through 10. And if you remember, in this particular section, Peter is trying to remind the believers that he's writing to of their identity. He wants to encourage them to remember who they are so that in the next few sections, he can start to talk about how they then should live because of this identity. In fact, going all the way back to our first session together, uh, Peter has been working through chapter 1 and now into chapter 2 to remind them through these four orienting principles that we've talked about. So we want to review those. And I know we've talked about them every week, but we want to look again at them and, and see how they function in our text today. So Peter reminds them of him. That's our first one, him, who God is. And in this particular text, Peter is going to say about God that God chooses that which seems rejected by the world. So Jesus is going to be chosen to be used as his living stone. And we too become living stones like him, even though, especially for Peter's audience as they suffer, they experience rejection. So what kind of God is the God that we follow? Well, he is holy, and he is the kind of God that chooses those who seem like they are rejected by the world. The second orienting principle is the hope that we have. And we'll see elements of that in this text. But the, the primary orienting principle we'll see in this text is the, the word history or the concept of history that we have established through these first few chapters. We've already mentioned that Peter uses around 30 to 35 Old Testament quotations and allusions in this letter. And around the same number, 25 to 30, uh, quotations or allusions from the Gospels. But in this particular passage, chapter 2, verses 3 through 10, he is going to pack in the Old Testament allusions, reminding these people of who they are because of their history. Their identity is going to be established in these metaphors and in these quotations from the Old Testament. So I want to remind you to be on the lookout for them, but I want to actually give you five or six of them to be looking for. And, and so we want to pause, even in this introduction, just for a moment, to, to look back at the history that Peter is aware of that he's going to tie into this particular passage today. Here's the first text. Exodus chapter 19, verse 6. If you were to turn back to the, the book of Exodus, you would recognize that this chapter occurs right after the Exodus, right after the Passover. As the people of Israel have left slavery and now they wander through the wilderness, God says, you are my people, a chosen people, a holy nation. And it's right before, chapter 19 is right before chapter 20 in Exodus, where God will reveal to them the Ten Commandments, and then will unpack those Ten Commandments to tell them what kind of people they should be because they are his people, because he has redeemed them. Notice how this passage is similar to what Peter's doing in this letter. He's establishing identity based upon their history and who God is and what he's done for them. They are too, like in Exodus, they are exiles. They are wandering. They are strangers in a foreign land. They are not at the promised land yet. So this little passage, Exodus chapter 19, is a key quotation for Peter that we need to recognize the context 
Because the context of that Old Testament story forms the mortar as Peter's going to bring these bricks or these stones together to build this particular passage. And, and we need to understand what fills in those gaps. Now, I also find it interesting that like what Peter has done in the past, he's going to do next, similar to Exodus 19. Exodus 19 reminds them of their history. God redeemed you. He brought you out of Egypt. Therefore, here's how you should live. Ten commandments. Here's how masters and slaves and families. And here's how you should live with the nations around you. Peter, after this, is going to do the same thing. Here's how you should live with those in authority over you. Here's how husbands and wives should live. Here's how masters and slaves and households should live. So Exodus 19, verse 6. We want to keep an eye on that particular Old Testament passage. Here's another one. Psalm chapter 118, verse 22. Now this particular passage is key to understanding not only Peter's uh, text here, but also many texts throughout the New Testament. This, what has been labeled a messianic psalm, because not only Christians, but also those who were Jewish at the time in the first century world, looked at this psalm for clues as to who the Messiah would be. But this particular psalm recognizes someone who would come and be rejected, a king who would come and be rejected. In particular, it's someone who cries out to God, trusting God as they experience the rejection and suffering and rebellion of the nations around them. And yet God chooses that one who was rejected. Particularly, this passage is used in the book of Mark. Mark, by the way, writing Peter's sermons according to church history. It's used in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 4, in Peter's own message, in Peter's own testimony about Jesus. And again, it's used here. It apparently is one of Peter's favorite passages in talking about Jesus, someone who was rejected, but who became the key to unlocking everything. So we want to watch for that particular passage as well. Here's a third one. The entire book of Isaiah, specifically chapter 8, chapter 28, chapter 43, there are multiple links to the book of Isaiah. Now, Isaiah as a whole teaches us a number of lessons. But one of the primary lessons from these passages is to not put our trust in foreign nations or foreign powers, nor to put our trust in our own power or the military strength of Israel, rather to trust in God. There's also links in the book of Isaiah to a cornerstone, again, that would be rejected, that would become God's key to building the nation or his people again. So Isaiah has multiple allusions here. And again, don't be surprised that Peter sees the context of that historical moment in Isaiah's history, as well as Exodus, as well as Psalms. And he sees that as a parallel living circumstance for the people he's talking to in this particular letter. Don't trust in the nations. Don't trust in Rome. As you are wanderers and aliens and strangers in this land, don't live like them. Don't be like them. Don't trust in your own strength, but put your trust and your identity in him as your savior. Here's another passage we'll see. It's from the book of Hosea. Uh, Hosea is a prophetic story about God's people who had rejected him. And Hosea is called to marry a prostitute. And that moment when he does and her rebellion and her rejection of him and her cheating on him is this picture of Israel's history with God and their cheating on God and the rebellion against him. And yet Hosea is called to call her back and say, you, you again can be my wife. And, and God says to Israel, I, I want you to be my people. 
And we discover this merciful God, this God who chooses us and selects us even though we have lived in rebellion. And we'll see allusions to that particular passage. The last one I want to mention is Genesis chapter 1. When it comes to our history, God created light out of darkness. And he is still in the process of recreating light where there is darkness. That's a great hope for us. And so as we look at those orienting principles, who he is, him, our hope and our history, it reminds us of our identity. And and therefore, our fourth orienting principle is where we are in our passage today, how we should live in holiness as his people. Now, last week, we asked the question, so why should we be holy? And we've said that in chapter 1, verse 13, all the way through our text today, chapter 2, verse 10, Peter gives us two answers of why we should live as holy people. The first answer is because we are his children. He has adopted us. He has chosen us. And because he is our father, we should be holy because he is holy, because he is good. And in chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, we learned that we should nourish ourselves on his word. We should taste and see that the Lord is good. So why should we be holy? Because we're his children. And now our passage today. Why should we be holy? Because we are his temple. We are stones, living stones, that are being used by God and built together to become a living temple in this world that bears testimony, witness to who he is. So notice the two common uh, themes between these two metaphors. Children, very common, but they take on the characteristics of the father. And stones, very common, but they take on the characteristics of the builder. It reminds me, my family a couple years ago had the opportunity to go in southern Colorado to a place called Bishop Castle. Bishop Castle is a castle in Colorado that has been built by one man, a man named Jim Bishop. He, he bought this two and a half acres of land in southern Colorado when he was 15 years old for $450. And for the past 60 years, he has been building what first was a cabin that some people said, hey, it looks like a castle. That sparked his imagination and set him on a course for 60 years where he has now built a castle with a flame-breathing dragon and drawbridges and everything that you can visit for free. There's some interesting stories about it, but he has built this one stone at a time over the course of around 60 years. Now, Jim has used not only this two and a half acres, but also the national park next to his property to gather these stones. There's some controversy going on there, and he's an interesting study. You ought to check it out. But if you go there now, come back and watch the rest of this video. But what reminds me of, of this castle is this text. Because God in this text says, you are living stones. It's almost as if God looks out over the world. 7.8 billion people in the world right now. It's sometimes we feel or we can feel like we are small and insignificant and don't matter. But God looks out and he chooses us. He selects us. He brings us and he uses us in community with one another, founded upon the cornerstone of Jesus, and he builds us into a temple. That's a powerful picture. Billions of people, 7.8 billion, we can feel like we are insignificant. You know how long it takes to count to a billion? 
I once had a student in my youth group come to me and the math teacher had challenged him to, um, to write one to a billion in a notebook. And if he did accomplish this, then he would get an automatic A on their math final in high school. I had to laugh in that moment because we had to sit down and do just a little bit of math uh, together as student minister and student. I said, how long do you think it'll take you to count to a billion? And we started crunching the numbers. He had already counted, I don't know, one to maybe six, seven thousand in this notebook, writing it out longhand. One, two, multiple pages were already filled but we discovered it would take him over 30 years. That's without sleeping. Uh, some estimates say it may even take him over 100 years, maybe even 250 years to count one to a billion. I started telling him this, like, okay, you're not going to get there by the time the final happens. But then we started counting up the math of how much these notebooks would cost. I I'd noticed how many pages he had used up to count out the numbers, and we crunched the numbers, and we discovered an astronomical figure, even paying a dollar per notebook, of how much this challenge would cost him. He finally answered, I guess I should study for the final, huh? And I kind of laughed. That would probably be a good idea, maybe to do a little bit of math when your teacher asks you next time to count to a billion. A billion is astronomical. You are one of 7.8 billion people alive today. And yet this text says, but you matter to God. You see what Peter's doing? He is establishing our identity for these exiles as they are scattered across the, the world. Peter writes to these five regions. And yet he says, you are chosen by God. And so we want to look at this particular passage. Look at 1 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 4. We'll deal with first, verses 4 and 5 first. Peter says, as you come to him, that is Jesus, a living stone. Now, typically stones were not alive. I mean, we know this. But, but stones in the ancient world represented something, didn't they? They were memorials. We still do this today. Memorials of that which had died. But that's not true of Jesus, right? That's part of the hope. That's part of who he is, those orienting principles, him and hope. When we come to Jesus, he's not a stone of remembrance for something that is dead. No, he is a living stone. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men. There's Psalm 118 in the background. Jesus was rejected. And if you experience rejection, that's okay. Because you are a follower of Jesus. And he also experienced rejection. But even though he experienced rejection, notice what Peter says. But in the sight of God, as for how God looks over the landscape of humanity or the landscape of stones on the landscape, he sees us who are rejected, he sees Jesus who is rejected, and he is chosen, and he is precious. This is how God sees you as his people. You are his treasured possession. You are precious. So Peter's going to build on this. The Old Testament quotations are these, these bricks, this mortar that help us frame up our identity. Verse 5. And you yourselves, Peter said, you are also like living stones. Notice, you're not going to die and just be remembered. No, you're going to be built up and you're going to live on. You're going to be built up as a spiritual house. In other words, a temple. And in this temple, you'll be a holy priesthood. Peter's okay with mixing his metaphors. But notice the purpose. Here's your purpose. To offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Over and over again, Peter's going to bring us to this core idea that this identity is centralized on Jesus, the living stone, and through him at the very end of this particular passage. 
So what's Peter doing here? Well, number one, he is establishing our identity in Jesus. Like Jesus was rejected and chosen, so too we are rejected and chosen. He's establishing our identity as a community. We are only built up when we are built together. I love this image of the church right now because the church right now is portable. The temple, the actual temple in Jerusalem, had its limitations. Now, its strengths were this. It represented God's presence in the world. That was true of the tabernacle. It was true of the temple. It represented the fact that God desired to dwell with his people, that he was with us. The temple represented that. It also was a place where we could come and we could encounter him. We could worship him. It's a place where we could come and attribute value and worth to him. In fact, it was the center of the community, whether that was the tabernacle and they camped around it or the temple and wherever they were in the the diaspora, the dispersion of the Jewish uh, people, they turned to the temple and acknowledged God as their center. The temple was significant in that, but its limitation was it was only found in Jerusalem. We are on the cusp of this temple, when Peter writes this letter, being destroyed by the Romans. So notice the significance. As Jesus said, this temple is my body. It'll be torn down and be built up again. The church adopts that idea that they are the temple, that God's people are this temple that is no longer in one place, but it is portable. Wherever we go, we are built together to become this two principles of a temple. Number one, the presence of God. Wherever we go, the Holy Spirit goes with us. This is no small thing. And God is present wherever we are. This is no longer, notice for Peter's audience, this is no longer just true in Jerusalem. But it's now true in each of these five regions where these churches are. God is present with them. And as they come together, they represent him. They are a light in the darkness. They are the center of what is acknowledging God as the center of their community. So even when the temple is destroyed, God's presence is still made manifest with us. Notice again, the second principle of the temple is a place of worship. So it's not a building. It is now a people, a people who worship, as Jesus says in John chapter 4, in spirit and in truth. And these people become priests. Priests, by the way, were what? They were made holy. Now, they weren't made holy because of who they were. Why were they holy? Because they were from the father's lineage of Aaron, but we're from the lineage of of Christ. We are made holy because of a perfect sacrifice, not because of something we've done. But our task as holy priests, as those who are set aside, is to make spiritual sacrifices. Not just physical sacrifices, but sacrifices that are true in nature. They, as Jesus said, they worship in spirit and in truth. So hold on to that purpose, because you'll see a second one in just a moment. We are collectively, as a people, being built up into a people that do two things. We represent God's presence to the world. God is with us. And we manifest that presence in our worship as we worship him and we put him at the center of our lives, sacrificing to him and worshiping him daily. So so notice that we have some choices to make when it comes to this. Um, Peter's going to say in verse 6 that Jesus is this cornerstone. And we're going to discover that Peter's going to give us a choice. And he's going to give all of us, all of humanity, a choice to do two things with Jesus. Really, only two options. One of them is to trip over this stone that is the cornerstone. 
Now, some of you have tripped over a stone before. Um, I've actually seen this happen even at a funeral where someone has tripped over a gravestone. It was embarrassing for them. I won't mention who it was. But, but I've seen this where people have tripped over a stone. Maybe you've tripped over something significant. We can do this to Jesus. Jesus can be a stumbling block. It was prophesied in the Old Testament, Peter says. Or the other choice is that we can actually build our lives upon him. Those are our two choices. Trip over him, stumble over him. Or let him become what he is by God's choice, the cornerstone. What's true of a cornerstone? Well, they're the first, yes, but it's to that cornerstone that everything else is aligned. All of the other stones, as they are built up to become part of the building, or in this case, a temple, the household of God, all of the other stones are aligned to his direction or to that particular direction. What's true of our lives with Jesus? Well, we can stumble over him and reject him, or we can align every aspect and attribute of our lives to him. This is part of what it looks like to be obedient children as well. So notice the the parallels. We as holy people are either obedient children or we are stones aligned to the cornerstone. Same thing, two metaphors. Peter says in verse 6, For it stands in Scripture... This is nothing new. This is all a continuation of God's plan from the beginning. It's not like the church is God's second plan to Israel. No, this was all part of God's plan for redeeming all of the nations through Israel and through his Messiah. This stands in scripture. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, and and precious, chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him, notice the stone is not an it but a him, whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. That's from Isaiah. Peter goes on. So this honor is for those who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. That's Psalm 122. Then Peter goes on, a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. That's Isaiah chapter 8. They stumble because they, why do they stumble? They disobey the word as they were destined to do. Now, Peter's already said we should be children who obey. But he says we have a choice. We can stumble over Jesus or we can build our lives upon him. And I love this, I love this metaphor that we have, but it also helps us understand our identity That in this world, not everyone will turn and accept Jesus. Some will stumble over him and some will reject him. For a people who is suffering, Peter's going to talk about suffering in this passage. For a people who are suffering, this is key. Jesus experienced rejection. You will experience rejection. But God will still choose you. And God will build you up into something that will be living and lasting. So we turn to him in hope And we turn to him and we still live in holiness as his people, distinct from the rest of the world. Because God has taken us from the world and built us into this temple. Verse 9, you are a chosen people, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a, a priesthood for the king. You serve him, you make sacrifices for him. A holy nation, a people for his own possession. Notice the multiple layers of Old Testament passages there, but that history, that rich history that Peter's tying them into. God is choosing you as he's chosen people before you because you have chosen him because of your faith. But again, he comes to purpose. Why all of these things? Well, here's your purpose. That you may proclaim, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him 
Him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, here's Hosea echoing. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. What's one of the purposes of why God is doing this? Because number one, we are a kingdom of priests and we can sacrifice to him. We can worship him. But number two, we can proclaim him to the nations. We can proclaim who he is and what he has done. Why are we holy? We're not holy to earn anything from God. He is already merciful. He has already chosen us. He has already sent Jesus, who is rejected and resurrected again. Why do we determine to be holy? Because he has made us holy in Christ, and our identity is established in him, even though we are in exile in this world. And why are we holy? So we can proclaim his excellencies. We can proclaim his glory throughout all of the world. That's what we'll see in our passage next week as we continue in verses 11 and 12. Ultimately, it's so that those who are living in this world can see our good deeds and not give glory to us, but like the temple, come and see those good deeds, those stones that are built together, that grand architecture that is put together and that is good and that is beautiful, but not so they could see the glory of the stones, but so they could see the glory of the God, the God that we worship. Here's my challenge for you this week. What will people remember when this season is over? Will, they, will it be our sacrifices that we make because we want other people to see God or because we want to attribute value and trust and faith in God? Will it be the proclamations of hope and security that we have, the proclamations that Christ is enough for us? I want to challenge you to continue to orient yourself to these four principles. Who is God? Who is he? What is our hope? What is our history? And because of those three elements, who are we called to be as a holy people living for Jesus and because of him? Prayers are go with you this week. I'm thankful for you. We'll pick up next week in chapter two, starting in verse 11. Thanks again for checking out this podcast. We hope this teaching helped you to discover completeness in Jesus and encourages you to help others do the same. For more resources or to learn about Christ Church in general, visit us online at cco.church.